Section 13 of An Editor's Tales by Anthony Trollope. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. The Spotted Dog, Part 1, The Attempt. Some few years since we received the following letter. Dear Sir, I write to you for literary employment, and I implore you to provide me with it if it be within your power to do so. My capacity for such work is not small, and my acquirements are considerable. My need is very great, and my views in regard to remuneration are modest. I was educated at blank, and was afterwards a scholar of blank college Cambridge. I left the university without a degree, in consequence of a quarrel with a college tutor. I was rusticated and not allowed to return. After that I became for a while a student for the Chancery Bar. I then lived for some years in Paris, and I understand and speak French as though it were my own language. For all purposes of literature I am equally conversant with German. I read Italian. I am, of course, familiar with Latin. In regard to Greek, I will only say that I am less ignorant of it than nineteen-twentieths of our national scholars. I am well read in modern and ancient history. I have especially studied political economy. I have not neglected other matters necessary to the education of an enlightened man, unless it be natural philosophy. I can write English, and can write it with rapidity. I am a poet at least I so esteem myself. I am not a believer. My character will not bear investigation, in saying which I mean you to understand not that I steal or cheat, but that I live in a dirty lodging, spend many of my hours in a public house, and cannot pay tradesmen's bills where tradesmen have been found to trust me. I have a wife and four children, which burden forbids me to free myself from all care by a bare bodkin. I am just past forty, and since I quarreled with my family because I could not understand the Trinity, I have never been the owner of a ten-pound note. My wife was not a lady. I married her because I was determined to take refuge from the conventional thraldom of so-called gentlemen amidst the liberties of the lower orders. My life, of course, has been a mistake. Indeed, to live at all, is it not a folly? I am at present employed on the staff of two or three of the Penny Dreadfuls. Your august highness in literature has perhaps never heard of a Penny Dreadful. I write for them matter which we among ourselves call blood and nastiness, and which is copied from one to another. For this I am paid forty-five shillings a week. For thirty shillings a week I will do any work that you may impose upon me for the term of six months. I write this letter as a last effort to rescue myself from the filth of my present position, but I entertain no hope of any success. If you will ask it, I will come and see you, but do not send for me unless you mean to employ me, as I am ashamed of myself. I live at number three Cucumber Court, Gray's Inn Lane. 
but if you write, address to the care of Mr. Grimes, the spotted dog, Liquor Pond Street. Now I have told you my whole life, and you may help me if you will. I do not expect an answer. Yours truly, Julius Mackenzie. Indeed, he had told us his whole life, and what a picture of a life he had drawn. There was something in the letter which compelled attention. It was impossible to throw it, half-read, into the waste-paper basket, and to think of it not at all. We did read it, probably twice, and then put ourselves to work to consider how much of it might be true, and how much false. Had the man been a boy at blank, and then a scholar of his college? We concluded that, so far, the narrative was true. Had he abandoned his dependence on wealthy friends from conscientious scruples, as he pretended? Or had other and less creditable reasons caused the severance? On that point we did not quite believe him. And then, as to those assertions made by himself in regard to his own capabilities, how far did they gain credence with us? We think that we believed them all, making some small discount, with the exception of that one in which he proclaimed himself to be a poet. A man may know whether he understands French, and be quite ignorant whether the rhymed lines which he produces are or are not poetry. When he told us that he was an infidel, and that his character would not bear investigation, we went with him altogether. His allusion to suicide we regarded as a foolish boast. We gave him credit for the four children, but were not certain about the wife. We quite believed the general assertion of his impecuniosity. That stuff about conventional thraldom we hope we took at its worth. When he told us that his life had been a mistake, he spoke to us gospel truth. Of the penny dreadfuls, and of blood and nastiness, so-called, we had never before heard, but we did not think it remarkable that a man so gifted as our correspondent should earn forty-five shillings a week by writing for the cheaper periodicals. It did not, however, appear to us probable that any one so remunerated would be willing to leave that engagement for another which should give him only thirty shillings. When he spoke of the filth of his present position, our heart began to bleed for him. We know what it is so well, and can fathom so accurately the degradation of the educated man who, having been ambitious in the career of literature, falls into that slew of despond by which the profession of literature is almost surrounded. There we were with him as brothers together. When we came to Mr. Grimes and the Spotted Dog, in Liquor Pond Street, we thought that we had better refrain from answering the letter, by which decision on our part he would not, according to his own statement, be much disappointed. Mr. Julius Mackenzie. Perhaps at this very time rich uncles and aunts were buttoning up their pockets against the sinner because of his devotion to the Spotted Dog. There are well-to-do people among the Mackenzies. It might be the case that that heterodox want of comprehension in regard to the Trinity was the cause of it, but we have observed that in most families 
grievous as are doubts upon such sacred subjects, they are not held to be cause of hostility so invincible as is a thorough-going devotion to a spotted dog. If the spotted dog had brought about these troubles, any interposition from ourselves would be useless. For twenty-four hours we had given up all idea of answering the letter, but it then occurred to us that men who have become disreputable as drunkards do not put forth their own abominations when making appeals for aid. If this man were really given to drink, he would hardly have told us of his association with the public house. Probably he was much at the spotted dog, and hated himself for being there. The more we thought of it, the more we fancied that the gist of his letter might be true. It seemed that the man had desired to tell the truth as he himself believed it. It so happened that at that time we had been asked to provide an index to a certain learned manuscript in three volumes. The intended publisher of the work had already procured an index from a professional compiler of such matters, but the thing had been so badly done that it could not be used. Some knowledge of the classics was required, though it was not much more than a familiarity with the names of Latin and Greek authors, to which perhaps should be added some acquaintance with the names, also, of the better-known editors and commentators. The gentlemen who had had the work in hand had failed conspicuously, and I had been told by my enterprising friend, Mr. X, the publisher, that twenty-five pounds would be freely paid on the proper accomplishment of the undertaking. The work, apparently so trifling in its nature, demanded a scholar's acquirements, and could hardly be completed in less than two months. We had snubbed the offer, saying that we should be ashamed to ask an educated man to give his time and labor for so small a remuneration. But to Mr. Julius Mackenzie, twenty-five pounds for two months' work would manifestly be a godsend. If Mr. Julius Mackenzie did in truth possess the knowledge for which he gave himself credit, if he was, as he said, familiar with Latin, and was less ignorant of Greek than nineteen-twentieths of our national scholars, he might perhaps be able to earn this twenty-five pounds. We certainly knew no one else who could, and who would do the work properly, for that money. We therefore wrote to Mr. Julius Mackenzie and requested his presence. Our note was short, cautious, and also courteous. We regretted that a man so gifted should be driven by stress of circumstances to such need. We could undertake nothing, but if it would not put him to too much trouble to call upon us, we might perhaps be able to suggest something to him. Precisely at the hour named, Mr. Julius Mackenzie came to us. We well remember his appearance, which was one unutterably painful to behold. He was a tall man, very thin, thin, we might say, as a whipping-post, were it not that one's ideas of a whipping-post conveys erectness and rigidity, whereas this man, as he stood before us, was full of bends and curves and crookedness, his big head seemed to lean forward over his miserably narrow chest, his back was bowed, and his legs were crooked and tottering. 
He had told us that he was over forty, but we doubted, and doubt now, whether he had not added something to his years in order partially to excuse the wan, worn weariness of his countenance. He carried an infinity of thick, ragged, wild, dirty hair, dark in color, though not black, which age had not yet begun to grizzle. He wore a miserable attempt at a beard, stubbly, uneven, and half-shorn, as though it had been cut down within an inch of his chin with blunt scissors. He had two ugly projecting teeth, and his cheeks were hollow. His eyes were deep-set, but very bright, illuminating his whole face, so that it was impossible to look at him and to think him to be one wholly insignificant. His eyebrows were large and shaggy, but well-formed, not meeting across the brow, with single stiffly projecting hairs, a pair of eyebrows which added much strength to his countenance. His nose was long and well-shaped, but red as a huge carbuncle. The moment we saw him, we connected that nose with the spotted dog. It was not a blotched nose, not a nose covered with many carbuncles, but a brightly red, smooth, well-formed nose, one glowing carbuncle in itself. He was dressed in a long brown greatcoat, which was buttoned up round his throat, and which came nearly to his feet. The binding of the coat was frayed, the buttons were half uncovered, the buttonholes were tattered. The velvet collar had become party-colored with dirt and usage. It was in the month of December, and a greatcoat was needed, but this greatcoat looked as though it were worn because other garments were not at his command. Not an inch of linen or even of flannel shirt was visible. Below his coat we could only see his broken boots and the soiled legs of his trousers, which had reached that age which in trousers defies description. When we looked at him we could not but ask ourselves whether this man had been born a gentleman and was still a scholar, and yet there was that in his face which prompted us to believe the account he had given of himself. As we looked at him we felt sure that he possessed keen intellect, and that he was too much of a man to boast of acquirements which he did not believe himself to possess. We shook hands with him, asked him to sit down, and murmured something of our sorrow that he should be in distress. "'I am pretty well used to it,' said he. There was nothing mean in his voice. There was indeed a touch of humor in it, and in his manner there was nothing of the abjectness of supplication.' We had his letter in our hands, and we read a portion of it again as he sat opposite to us. We then remarked that we did not understand how he, having a wife and family dependent on him, could offer to give up a third of his income with the mere object of changing the nature of his work. "'You don't know what it is,' said he, "'to write for the penny dreadfuls. I'm at it seven hours a day.' and I hate the very words that I write. I cursed myself afterwards for sending that letter. I know that to hope is to be an ass, but I did send it, and here I am. We looked at his nose and felt that we must be careful before we suggested to our learned friend, Dr. Blank, to put his manuscript into the hands of Mr. Julius Mackenzie. 
If it had been a printed book, the attempt might have been made without much hazard. But our friend's work, which was elaborate and very learned, had not yet reached the honors of the printing house. We had had our own doubts whether it might ever assume the form of a real book, but our friend, who was a wealthy as well as a learned man, was as yet very determined. He desired, at any rate, that the thing should be perfected, and his publisher had therefore come to us offering twenty-five pounds for the codification and index. Were anything other than good to befall his manuscript, his lamentations would be loud, not on his own score, but on behalf of learning in general. It behoved us, therefore, to be cautious. We pretended to read the letter again, in order that we might gain time for a decision, for we were greatly frightened by that gleaming nose. Let the reader understand that the nose was by no means Bardolphian. If we have read Shakespeare aright, Bardolph's nose was a thing of terror from its size as well as its hue. It was a mighty vat into which had ascended all the divinest particles distilled from the cellars of the hostelry in Eastcheap. Such at least is the idea which stage representations have left upon all our minds. But the nose now before us was a well-formed nose, would have been a commanding nose, for the power of command shows itself much in the nasal organ, had it not been for its color. While we were thinking of this, and doubting much as to our friend's manuscript, Mr. Mackenzie interrupted us. "'You think I am a drunkard,' said he. The man's mother wit had enabled him to read our inmost thoughts. As we looked up, the man had risen from his chair, and was standing over us. He loomed upon us very tall, although his legs were crooked and his back bent. Those piercing eyes and that nose which almost assumed an air of authority, as he carried it, were a great way above us. There seemed to be an infinity of that old brown greatcoat. He had divined our thoughts, and we did not dare to contradict him. We felt that a weak, vapid, unmanly smile was creeping over our face. We were smiling as a man smiles who intends to imply some contemptuous assent with the self-deprecating comment of his companion. Such a mode of expression is, in our estimation, most cowardly and most odious. We had not intended it, but we knew that the smile had pervaded us. "'Of course you do,' said he. "'I was a drunkard, but I am not one now. It doesn't matter.' only I wish you hadn't sent for me. I'll go away at once. So saying, he was about to depart, but we stopped him. We assured him with much energy that we did not mean to offend him. He protested that there was no offense. He was too well used to that kind of thing to be made more than wretched by it. Such was his heartbreaking phrase. As for anger, I've lost all that long ago. Of course you take me for a drunkard, and I should still be a drunkard only... Only what? I asked. It don't matter, said he. I need not trouble you with more than I have already said. You haven't got anything for me to do, I suppose. Then I explained to him that I had something he might do. 
if I could venture to entrust him with the work. With some trouble I got him to sit down again, and to listen while I explained to him the circumstances. I had been grievously afflicted when he alluded to his former habit of drinking, a former habit, as he himself now stated, but I entertained no hesitation in raising questions as to his erudition. I felt almost assured that his answers would be satisfactory, and that no discomfiture would arise from such questioning. We were quickly able to perceive that we at any rate could not examine him in classical literature. As soon as we mentioned the name and nature of the work, he went off its score, and satisfied us amply that he was familiar at least with the title-pages of editions. We began indeed to fear whether he might not be too caustic a critic on our own friend's performance. Dr. Blank is only an amateur himself, said we, deprecating in advance any such exercise of the red-nosed man's too severe erudition. We never get much beyond dilettantism here, said he, as far as Greek and Latin are concerned. What a terrible man he would have been could he have got upon the staff of the Saturday Review instead of going to the spotted dog. We endeavored to bring the interview to an end by telling him that we would consult the learned doctor from whom the manuscript had emanated and we hinted that a reference would be, of course, acceptable. His impudence, or perhaps we should rather call it his straightforward, sincere audacity, was unbounded. Mr. Grimes of the Spotted Dog knows me better than anyone else, said he. We blew the breath out of our mouth with astonishment. I'm not asking you to go to him to find out whether I know Latin and Greek, said Mr. Mackenzie. You must find that out for yourself. We assured him that we thought we had found that out. But he can tell you that I won't pawn your manuscript. The man was so grim and brave that he almost frightened us. We hinted, however, that literary reference should be given. The gentleman who paid him forty-five shillings a week, the manager, in short, of the penny dreadful, might tell us something of him. Then he wrote for us a name on a scrap of paper, and added to it an address in the close vicinity of Fleet Street, at which we remembered to have seen the title of a periodical, which we now knew to be a penny dreadful. Before he took his leave he made us a speech, again standing up over us, though we also were on our legs. It was that bend in his neck, combined with his natural height, which gave him such an air of superiority in conversation. He seemed to overshadow us, and to have his own way with us because he was enabled to look down upon us. There was a footstool on our hearthrug, and we remember to have attempted to stand upon that in order that we might escape this supervision. But we stumbled and had to kick it from us, and something was added to our sense of inferiority by this little failure. I don't expect much from this, he said. I never do expect much. And I have misfortunes independent of my poverty, which make it impossible that I should be other than a miserable wretch. Bad health? we asked. No, nothing absolutely personal. 
but never mind. I must not trouble you with more of my history. But if you can do this thing for me, it may be the means of redeeming me from utter degradation. We then assured him that we would do our best, and he left us with a promise that he would call again on that day week. End of section 13 Recording by Arnold Banner, Thurmond, North Carolina